Welcome to episode 10 of the Corver Real Estate Insider. Uh, really cool to be here at the 10th episode already. Time has flown by. Uh, unfortunately, we've got two of the pod members with a little bit of a cold, me included. Going to try and keep the sniffles to a minimum today. Uh, we have an exciting episode, a departure from the uh, last two where we've talked about the tough situation to navigate in corporate real estate. Today, as usual, we're going to be jumping into the news, what's happened over the last two weeks, but we're also going to be talking about who's buying office buildings today, who's selling, uh, is this a market cycle or generational change, why is this happening, what's going on with sale leasebacks, and then we're also going to be spending a little bit of time talking about as the market shifts to a much stronger tenant market, really across all product types, what are the new provisions that we're seeing tenants secure in lease negotiations? To kick us off on the news, Brian Connolly with an interesting story. Thanks, Tucker. Um, I want to talk about something I've been researching for a client. Um, it's really around how companies are viewing, large corporations are viewing their real estate. There's uh, some that's public and some that's not. But if you look at, say, Meta, Meta's come out publicly and put their plans for expansion in the campus they had um, they had envisioned for Northern California on hold. You've got um, Oracle that put 300,000 square feet of space on the market and moved their headquarters to uh, Austin, Texas. You've got another one of the FANG companies that's not public yet but could be putting their campus in Northern California on the market, which is roughly a million square feet. You've got another large, uh, coming out of Northern California, you've got another large um, tech company that could be putting one, two, three, or four buildings on the market in New England. They have a campus here. Um, so I just think, I, I find it interesting that you're starting to see um, these large corporate campuses in the environment that I think people thought their employees wanted. Um, and they took a different look at it. They took a look at the cost structure of building owned campuses. They talked to, looked at the cost structure of operating owned campuses and really what their people wanted and have made a decision to uh, to to dispose of those or to look at them differently, which I thought uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting phenomenon of what's going on with all these um, you know corporate sale leasebacks, and uh, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you look at where um, you know the cost of capital is, and sale leasebacks are almost always the cheapest access to capital for all of these companies. But for a lot of these uh, very large fang companies, it's it's not even about uh, accessing uh, low cost of capital because, of course, I mean, not everyone's Apple and can issue public bonds at the you know lowest financeable rates that you're you're seeing in corporate bonds. Period. It's really more um, like Brian, like you're saying, around the operational um, structure of the company, right? How do you have a uh, real estate strategy that's more agile than maybe it was ten years ago when people, I think, presumed that stuff was just going to continue as usual? So. Um, I think for for smaller companies and like really where we're seeing this explosion of uh, sale leaseback volume, like as we've discussed on the podcast, 2022 is the highest ever volume of sale leaseback in terms of total dollar value of uh, buildings sold on a on a sale um, leasebacked basis. But yeah, I mean it's completely different for these big companies. They're really doing it around uh, portfolio optimization being in the right amount of space, having the flexibility to relocate um, and make changes as needed to accommodate their team. Although, Brian, are you suggesting that these folks are selling their campuses empty or are they leasing them back? 
they will be empty. As far as I know, the the particular companies I've uh, either, they're not going to build it, right? And they're just going to sit on the land or sell it, uh, or their buildings will be empty. Hmm. So not a, not the same sale leaseback phenomenon, but something else where they're shifting strategy entirely. Yeah, I mean, you never know, right? So as you look at it, there's very little information out there. So are they gonna are they gonna retain one building and or lease back one of the buildings if they sell multiple buildings? You just don't know yet. It depends on value. I think a big piece of it is what the future use, and I think this feeds well into what we're gonna be talking about. Like who's buying these buildings? Uh, is there a future use? Does it work well as future office? Does it work well as some conversion? And um, if you can create an environment that allows the employees to see a vision for the future in the area, right? It's not just an old campus that's now multi-tenanted. Uh, it could be a good opportunity to do a sales so lease back on a portion of it. You know, we've been talking a lot about office over the last nine podcasts, uh, industrial, a little bit of life science, but I want to um, talk about life science for a second because there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week that talked about how the lab market is now seeing its first signs of distress. And it's stuff that we've been calling on and talking about, at least I have for quite some time because we've been experiencing it here in Seattle. But, you know, life sciences and lab um, has been kind of the hottest uh, commercial real estate asset class for investors, especially through the pandemic. Um, it was an investor favorite and really because it was much, much less vulnerable to work from home. Uh, people can't go to their kitchen table and practice science and do experiments, as you can imagine. So um, that caused a tremendous amount of new supply uh, to be permitted and built. Um, much of that supply has not yet delivered. It's actually under construction right now. We've got buildings in Seattle that are, they've done the excavation into the ground and they're starting to come out of the ground. Um, and so there's the article was talking about how you know the, the market's not only stressed right now, but you have all these developers that during the pandemic, when there was a flood of, and a flood of demand uh, for life sciences space, were like, gosh, this is a resilient asset class. Let's just build more buildings. And so um, this is like adding a tremendous amount of supply to the market, or will be adding supply to the market when these buildings deliver. But now, given the rising interest rates, which continue to um, kind of occur and hopefully the Fed has had their last interest rate raised last week. You know, these companies that are um, filling some of these buildings, many are venture backed. And given the rising interest rate, there's a lack of funding for these organizations. And so these companies, many of whom we represent, are forced to moderate their growth and moderate their spend. And so not only do you have all the supply being delivered to the market, but you've got companies not taking as much space as they once would have taken, or even in some cases, they're staying in an incubator type space where it's not really a, their own particular space, but rather they're in a shared environment, much like a WeWork would, would be akin to office space. And so um, just to kind of give you an idea for our listeners, like what this is actually doing empirically to the markets, um, you know, San Diego um, in the pandemic had a 3% vacancy rate that's now up to 5.6%, so almost double. You know, Boston has five times the availability that it had during the pandemic and San Francisco has gone from 5.9% to 8.4%. Um, so we're seeing, and those are our three biggest hubs in the country. Seattle's not far behind, but we've almost doubled our vacancy rate as well. And so that's where we are today. Um, and by 2025, the nation will have about 220 million square feet of life science lab space. Um, that's the aggregate of all the supply in the country. Right now we have about 180 million. Um, so a 40 million square foot increase in supply 
And so this is just, I think, um, indicative of like the world we're in where we once thought life science was resilient to the whole rest of the world and the throes of like this, this um, rising interest rate environment and work from home, but um, it's starting to play out where it's becoming a tenant favorable market as well. The other piece of this too is that the reason availability in many of these markets have increased so significantly is because of sublease space too. Um, and it's likely we're only going to see more and more sublease space come on the market. And one of the one of the things that is interesting, going back to what Brian was talking about earlier, related to these um, you know fang companies and very large companies reallocating their real estate, making uh, you know sales of campuses either on a uh, you know partial lease backed basis or on a vacant basis, is that a lot of people have thought, hey, look, eventually the sublease space is going to stop hitting the market. And right now, if you know, say you're representing technology company that is doing a, um, you know, just normal office deal in any major market around the country, there's so much availability of sublease space that you can go in and do a deal at a 50, 60, 70 percent discount to market. And sometimes you can lock in that pricing for five years, 10 years with a termination option and a flexibility. Or, of course, going to be talking about the, you know, the new provisions we're getting as the, as the market shifts to a more, even more tenant favorable market. But it, it is interesting to think about when all of this sublease space stops coming to market, what happens? How does that change the landscape for landlord pricing power and all that? Um, and I think a lot of people would have expected that we would already be here, right? I mean, we've been, uh, you know, uh, we've, since the start of COVID, it's been, you know, uh, almost 40 months now. Right, you think that that would be enough time for these companies to recognize their long-term needs and put their space on the market for sublease. Not necessarily find a subtenant, but at least make a decision around that. Um, and I think a lot of the sublease space is, you know, in aggregate volume is being driven by these, uh, you know, Fortune 100 technology companies that have a ton of space that um, are subleasing space that they had intended to occupy in 2025, 2026 for growth. Now that they've had you know massive headcount reductions and slowing in their hiring, the the other reason for the delay too, keep in mind, is that a lot of these companies, when they lease space during the pandemic, the the notion in the market it was so frenetic and the vacancy was so low that there was a fear that if they didn't take the space now, space that they didn't need at present moment but foresaw the need in the future, it wasn't going to be available. And so a lot of these companies took way too much space than they even needed. Um, and now, especially given the headwinds of the economy and the interest rates, they just, they don't even don't perceive the need to ever become. And so that's part of the reason for the delay is that they, you know, they always had too much space, but they intended on filling it. Now they're realizing that that's just not going to be the case. Um, so they're trying to offset. And so we're seeing some delayed space hit the market. Yeah. The, the, so I sit here in, in Boston, the kind of the number one life science market in you know, in the country, certainly could be the world. But if you look at East Cambridge, that's kind of the epicenter of the of the industry, but it's a good bellwether of what we're talking about. It's the highest vacancy rate we've seen in five years. To Owen's point, through the pandemic, and certainly before the pandemic, just looking at a chart here, you know, effectively since kind of the fourth quarter of 2018, the vacancy rate in East Cambridge is effectively zero, right? So, if you are a company and you're trying to grow, and that's where all the, you know, that's where the epicenter is. So that's where the, the researchers are, the doctors, that's where all of the um, VC partners are. That's where everybody you need to be to be a, a growing company is kind of based out of there. 
And if, as you look at, you know, your growth plans and you're faced with a building you're in that's fully, that's, that's fully leased with zero ability to grow in the buildings around you or your, your building, you start to, you start to take down space defensively. Um, so we went from effectively zero space on the market to 60 subleases in, out, in, in the entire life science market, right? We've got demand that was probably somewhere between four and six million square feet. It's now about 1.3 million square feet. And 73% of that demand is, is tenants under 20,000 square feet or 25,000 square feet. So it's these small incubator companies that were a big portion or it's probably the same percentage of that four to six million square feet of demand were these small companies. Um, and now it's just a much smaller pool because there's less funding. So it's really turned that market upside down. Um, rents have yet to really recover, to be honest. So it's interesting. As you look at rents, there's, I think personally, is uh, there's a disconnect between the rents and the availability. And it's solely because there hasn't been enough pain in the market. These tenants are predominantly subleasing. The vacancy rates, the direct vacancy rates are still real low. So as tenants look at it and their brokers have, have uh, put in front of them uh, the market, the market's still sitting at numbers that are real healthy, and but space isn't leasing. So uh, what does that usually tell? No demand, rents are high, uh, there's probably a correction coming, but we're yet to see a major correction in these rents yet, in the, you know certainly in this market. Okay, let me go next. Um, the news story I was going to share is pretty light, but it's interesting. Um, it's a simple little article uh, written in CoStar titled, As Office Leasing Changes, Hotel Occupancy Follows. And they've got this really cool chart that uh, shows, you know, the change in leasing volume on the um, horizontal axis and the... Uh, decline in upper upscale occupancy of um, hotels on the on the y-axis and there's a really positive correlation these markets that have seen a real drop off in office leasing volume are also seeing a big decline in um, hospitality occupancy of these these upper upscale you know which are the hotels that business travelers typically use so I guess that's obvious and um, shouldn't be a surprise and the, the chart I'm looking at the Bottom, most of the markets shown are in the bottom left quadrant, San Francisco leading the pack in a negative way, down uh, office leasing volume down almost 50%, and the upper upscale occupancy down almost 30%. And then sh following along shortly thereafter, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Seattle, Chicago, New York, um, you know, up this trend line. There's a couple that are in positive. Uh, San Diego and, and Boston are both um, showing positive office leasing. Well, but this was 2022, and back to that life science comment, I think that was while life science was still booming. That's obviously now changed. Um, and then Miami is the only market that's in the upper right quadrant, um, and I think that has something to do with uh, crypto. So a bit of an outlier. Anyway, uh, I'll read you one paragraph from this article. Um, one outcome of the post-pandemic office is that it has become rarer for all staff members to be in the office at the same time. Where attendance is less frequent, travel to these offices and markets is impacted because there's less opportunity to meet in person with key stakeholders at the office. Thus, occupancy at upper upscale hotels has suffered as fewer corporate travelers visit clients and instead rely on technology to remain connected and productive. Okay, so that's their theory of the case, explaining this positive correlation. I don't know if that's the right answer or, or, or if that's true, but I find it really interesting um, 
it reminds me again that when people aren't getting on a plane and going to meet the client in person, there's an opportunity for the people who will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And let this be uh, a message for the civic leaders in those cities that are hit hardest, some of which still are reeling from crime and lawlessness downtown. You know, San Francisco, you mentioned, John, was one of those cities hit hard by this fact that you just talked about low hotel occupancy. Well, you know, one of these things these cities could be doing to help offset that loss is to encourage tourism and people coming to visit their city. Yet in San Francisco, last week it was announced that Nordstrom, you know, one of the most like um, revered kind of retailers uh, in the country has decided to close their store in downtown San Francisco due to crime. So let this be a message from me, I guess. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the pod, but for me to have these cities, you know, focus on general safety and the quality of their downtowns to help support those businesses and those hotels that are reeling from a lack of occupancy to encourage tourism. Um, but who's going to go to a city when even a flagship, you know, department store won't even occupy space any longer? I mean, so anyway. There you have it from our resident sheriff uh, and health and safety expert, Owen, who cares deeply about keeping the streets safe. Uh, John, let's let's jump to the next topic. Uh, I know that you did quite a bit of research in preparation of the pod. Let's help the audience understand, right? On every on every side of one of these, you know, building, you know, purchase sales, there's there's a buyer and seller, obviously, and who are these people that are buying these buildings? What kind of discounts are they buying them at? What do you think the motivation is? And are they simply taking a contrarian take to whoever's selling? Right? I mean, the the people that are participating in this transaction, I mean, are doing so willingly. And somebody thinks that they're selling at the right time and somebody thinks that they're buying at the right time and remains to be seen who's right. So really interesting topic to explore. Yeah, fantastic. Let me go. Um and so, unfortunately, it's going to have. I'm going to have to talk for a few minutes. I'm going to hog the airtime, and then I'll stop. I promise. Uh, when we threw out this question to the group, it was super interesting because I didn't have an answer. Uh, but I figured we ought to be able to try and come up with an answer. I mean, who's buying office buildings today? Um, is it just a market cycle thing, or is there something different going on now? And so, um, I dug into. Here's what I did. I dug into CoStar. Um, and I looked at the sa recent sales of office buildings, over $100 million um, in the last six months. And then I just started looking at each individual comp. And um, just getting through the first five, each one tells an interesting story. So let me just show you what I found. On April 6th, um, comp number one. On April 6th, one Liberty Plaza, uh, 2.35 million square feet in the World Trade Center submarket in Manhattan. Brookfield Asset Management purchased a 49% ownership interest from partner Blackstone for a total of $490 million. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Um, also, more interesting if you realize that um, that Brookfield had previously sold this minority interest to Blackstone in 2017 for $742 million. So what they sold to, to Blackstone for $742, they just bought back for 490 that's a discount of 34 percent um super interesting even more interesting to note that brookfield recently defaulted on a 755 million dollar loan on two two downtown towers in downtown los angeles 
So what it looks like is they're doubling down in Manhattan at a time that they're sort of giving up on those investments in Los Angeles. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Comp number two, uh, April 5th. I didn't have to go bet back very far in time, but I mean, transactions are happening. April 5th, Harborside Project at Hudson Waterfront Submarket in Jersey City, New Jersey. Two million square feet, sold for $440 million or $208 a square foot. It was mostly leased. There was just, just showing three spaces available. The seller was Varus Residential, and the buyer was 601W Companies. Uh, you know, Varus, let me read so I get it right. The seller was motivated to divest the asset as part of their business plan to transition to a pure play multifamily company. Uh, they've been at that for a while, so they... They just wanted out of office, and they went looking for a buyer and found a market price, a market clearing price. Um, so then I started looking at the 601W companies, right? Um, they're a pretty big player. And I found an article from January 2021 during the pandemic um, about them spending $945 million to purchase 410 10th Street in, in Manhattan. Um, here's a quote. Uh, the selling broker said 601W's willingness to pay nearly $1 billion for the SL Green building almost a year into the pandemic proves it's already looking past the crisis. And that goes on to say, from its inception, 601W has, has played the long game. Okay, so that's who's buying office buildings, office investors. Like, they're, they've been, they've always been buying office buildings, and they're viewing this as a market cycle, and they're buying something on sale. Veris wanted out. They found a market clearing price. I find that interesting. Comp number three, three, um, the park at Broken Sound, Boca Raton, Florida. There was a Home Depot. Is it Home Depot or Office Depot? I think it was Office Depot headquarters. Uh, sale leaseback, 650,000 square feet on 29 acres. It overlooks the Broken Sound Country Club. Um, Office Depot did a sale leaseback on 285,000 feet of it. Uh, the price was 104 million, or about 160 dollars a square foot. Interesting, they got a they got a loan from City National Bank for 63 million, so that's a 60 percent loan to value. Um, it was bought by a um, joint venture, Peb Enterprises and BH Group. Both those groups are office investors based in Miami. Um, you know, Peb is a private equity family office that's been around doing this 1973. And what I take away from that is. You know, office investors are going to invest in office buildings. They don't view this as a generational change. They're not giving up on the product. They buy quality product, banking on a flight to quality, and they're and they're mitigating risk with a sale lease back for a part of it. Um, I can see how they would rationalize that. Okay, quickly to comps four and five. Um, the buyer was the U.S. government, Department of uh, National Director, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, bought Liberty Crossing one and two. Um, $530 million, $630 per square foot uh, from Peterson Companies. Well done, Peterson Companies. Uh, here's what's interesting about this one. Where we were talking about sale leaseback volume being at an all-time high, here the U.S. government is doing the exact opposite, basically doing a lease buyback. They were leasing the buildings. They ran the math and decided they would be better off to own it rather than leasing it. So when the entire commercial market is running this way and doing sale leasebacks, they're doing a lease buyback. Maybe they're just... Yeah, I'll let the audience decide why the government's running in a different direction. Um, and that's it. Comps one through five. Each one tells a different story. And the, the main takeaway is that these offices, and, you know, we talk a lot about what's happening in downtown major metropolitan markets. And, you know, I always say that builders are going to build, you know, and, and office investors are going to invest in office buildings. Um, they're viewing this as a market cycle. They're looking for a market clearing price. Um there's going to be sellers who need to sell 
and uh, that's that's how the two parties come together. Yeah, uh, Brian. Yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting stuff. I, you know, I, it kind of reminds me to take a step back, right? So, <clears throat> if you remember, real estate was classified as an alternative investment for many years. So, um, you know, so the allocations in these large funds in these portfolios was was in the same allocation as other what they would quote as risky investments. Well, that allocation or that classification, which provided for a higher allocation, changed, and they became more of a core asset which allowed in large institutions and pension funds, global, uh, you know, just big global companies to, to invest a higher allocation of their capital into real estate, which really drove demand through the roof, right? So you're starting to see the many, like, and then it, at, at the same time, you had a lot of foreign, foreign investment, big investments out of Asia, big investments out of South America, the Middle East were, were massive investors in real estate, certainly in this market and around, probably around the country. And those allocations um, have changed. They're coming out of office. They're going into other types, industrial, certainly seeing higher allocations. Um, so I, I think what you're hearing, what I'm hearing for you is just, it's a cyclical thing. So there's a flight to quality. Find, you know, Brookfield has owned um, some of the nicest assets in lower Manhattan for my entire career. Sounds like they're, they're recommitting the capital to do that. Um, you're seeing other buildings that are trading at valuations that are lower than than what people believe the long-term value is. So if you're a long-term player, it could be a great time to buy, right? There's there's um, cyclical pressure on uh, to the downside, and if you're looking past this current market, it could be an, a great opportunity to own a really good asset at a at a low cost um, compared to historical values. So I don't see it as very um, now, I don't see it as changing the market drastically. I don't think that there's going to be a, a massive shift in who owns office buildings. I just think there's going to be less office buildings to own, is is my opinion. Well, that's, I think you're, hit the nail on the head. I mean, John, a lot of these buildings you talk to, less the building the GSA bought, which I don't have much faith in the GSA making the best real estate decisions, but... Um, they all sound like quality assets. So like looking over a country club in Boca Raton and then build a building that SL Green had developed. I mean, they built amazing product. They're all quality products. Um, the difference between now and other cycles, because there's always going to be a buying cycle for office and um, office buildings in the commercial markets. But the difference between now and previous cycles is that the people buying buildings will be buying quality buildings in quality locations. There are buildings that just won't trade. Nobody wants them. There's a building in Seattle. I won't go into detail about what it is, but it's not going to sell. Nobody wants it. You just take. You should take a wrecking ball to this thing and build something else. Maybe multifamily. I'm not sure. But the point this I'm, I want to make for our listeners, or listeners is that there will be trades. Stuff is going to continue to trade through 2023 and beyond. But the stuff you're going to see trade is going to be the quality assets um, that have the ability to attract those that put value on being back together in the office. And those buildings that are distressed um, because nobody wants to be in them won't trade. I'm just going to make that case right now. I mean, just, maybe they'll trade for such as a discounted price that it's a redevelopment, but they won't trade for an office developer or owner to try and reposition it because they're just been proven that they're functionally obsolete. Yeah, the the 
the end of the day, they're looking for returns, right? So look at what's at 350 California Street in San Francisco. It's all over the national news. It's going to sell for somewhere, what, around 40? I think the number's $40 million. Original estimates were, you know, $120 million. So uh, at some number, there's buyers, right? And then you just had the announcement over the weekend, TPG is buying Angel Gordon, who is not really an office owner. They have sale leasebacks, right, of corporate assets, but they're buying it for their credit business because they think there's greater greater return um, opportunity on the credit side. So they're going after, you know, high credit um, investment grade credit companies that Angelo Gordon's been lending to rather than putting their money into a real estate play, right? So as more money re retreats, retreats out of office real estate and commercial real estate in general, quite frankly, there's going to be less buyers. The pricing is going to come down, certainly in office, the hardest. I mean, we saw this. We've seen this act before in retail. Did the retail go away? Did the mall go away? No, there's less of them. The ones that are left are are um, are better positioned, better tenants, better located, um, certainly smaller, I think, in general. Uh, maybe that's an answer for some of these office markets. Uh, but we've seen this before, and it just corrects. The market corrects itself, and I think we'll see the, the other side of it. It's going to take some time because office leases are so long. Uh, but it's going to it's it's going to happen, and it's slow, you're starting to slowly see it happen today. An example that I think warrants a you know quick talking point on is Equity Office Blackstone's office arm sold uh, two uh, high rise towers in Santa Ana, which is a uh, kind of lower quality submarket in Orange County. Uh, but still pretty centrally located where where these towers are and a part of kind of the major, um, like most prominent CBD area in Orange County, which is a very suburban market. So there's a few different um, CBDs. And they sold the building at a 40% loss or so to what they had paid for it. And the price of these high-rise office towers, which, I mean, they're, they're, they're quality buildings, probably like a, you know, class B-plus type of building or maybe B-type building, um, would cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars of square, per square foot to construct today, uh, the buyer purchased the building for about $145 per square foot. So you think about buildings like that, where if you're buying with a basis of $150 a square foot, um, you know, and you can maintain 80% occupancy and charge, you know, rents that are in the, you know, high teens annually per square foot or $1.50 per square foot triple net, um, which like in that market works out to, you know, two and a half bucks a foot, 30 bucks a foot, which is, a, which is a competitive rent in Orange County. If you can do that, you can still generate really attractive returns because you're buying it at a, at a low enough price. So, um, you know, the, as we talked about on the last episode, equity office has transitioned it's, um, or I should say Blackstone has transitioned its real estate portfolio ownership to have very a very, very small amount of office holdings. And for them, they've had to go to the market clearing price, which is almost always below replacement costs in order to attract buyers. And in this case, they attracted a buyer at a price well below replacement costs where that buyer ostensibly believes that they can generate a premium return to you know buying uh, short duration treasuries in the 5% range now. So uh, we'll see. I think for a very long time, the success of Real estate investors have been driven by declining interest rates and less value add. And I think that there's many investors that believe interest rates will go down from here. 
maybe not to zero, but from 5% to 2% or 2.5%. And if that were to occur, anyone buying an office building or buying any fixed income that is priced based on the current reality, if we see interest rates get cut in half from you know 5 to 2.5%, those people are going to make a substantial amount of money unless the uh, you know, rents or tenants or occupancy and different factors that contribute to a value, building's value just precipitously decline over that same period. So we'll see. I think it's a risk to make, um, you know, buy really large capital decisions based off of macroeconomic forecast. I mean, if anyone really knew where interest rates uh, were going to be definitively in a year or two years, then you should be the chief investment officer of, you know, BlackRock or Blackstone or uh, figure out how to, you know, make a super, super levered bet and make billions of dollars. And I don't think there's a single person on the planet that really knows um, and only a few that have the conviction uh, and access to capital to make a real bet on what their viewpoint is. Hey, Tucker, in keeping with the title of this podcast, so who was the buyer? Who was that that bought a Santa Ana asset from Blackstone? Yeah, John, the buyer was a company called Barker Pacific Group. Um, and it looks like they're looking for these types of deals in other markets and, you know, buying select assets that they think are going to have above market returns. So we'll see. Um, I've, I've been sent, um, you know, as, as we've talked about on the pod, you know, just given that we're representing companies negotiating office leases, uh, you know, I, I won't invest in office buildings personally. I just think it's a huge conflict to be a stakeholder in the, you know, office market, but, um, you know, as somebody in the real estate community, I get sent um, investment opportunities all the time, and I've I've no idea what the um, you know investment pro forma for Barker Pacific Group looked like, and they paid a price that I believe there's a very good chance that they have a successful outcome here, just because they were able to acquire the building so inexpensively. But I've seen three or four different um, office pro formas over the last couple of months you know, looking to, you know, raise money or, you know, have me and others that I know invest. And all of the deals have been truly awful. Where I look at the pro forma, the price that they're paying, their lease up assumptions, and I look at it, I'm like, these people are going to just completely lose their shirt on these deals. Like, how are they possibly buying this? And, you know, maybe there's some people that model, hey, if we renew all of our tenants at a premium rate with no concessions, then great. We're going to make a ton of money, but that's not the reality that we live in. So, you know, I would definitely caution the, you know, everyday investor from um, investing in one of these, you know, syndicated office deals. The vast majority of uh, groups that are buying office buildings are um, incentivized immeasurably to buy these buildings, right? I mean, if somebody gets a 1% acquisition fee, or, you know, then it triggers them collecting a 3 or 4% property management fee once they buy an asset. There's a really significant conflict with the asset management business with a lot of the structures. Um, and unless you're investing with somebody that has a really long-term track record and, um, you know, a, a fund structure that creates alignment between the sponsor and investor, I'd be really terrified of investing in one of these office deals myself. And also, nor would I given my position, but if I weren't in this position and was making investments, um, I would be really deeply nervous. Yeah, I think I, th I think you're right. And just to look at it through the lens of a tenant, this, you know, this is 
the more deals that get retraded at valuations that are are realistic to all of the risk and assumptions you're talking about, the better it is for tenants either in those buildings, obviously, but for tenants in every building in, in the market because it starts to reset the before in terms of what opportunities there are at lower pricing points because if they buy the building with a lower basis, you can certainly get a lower rent. The challenge that many tenants are in today is they're in a building where the building was bought at a high valuation. The owner hasn't accepted that they are going to be wiped out of their equity, and they're trying to renew tenants and do deals at unrealistic rents. The more opportunities there are in the market with a completely new pricing structure, the better leverage a tenant will have in the process that they run to go either renew their lease at the right number and work with the parties to do that or relocate. And so I love to hear like the more buildings that trade and trade at the right number, the better it is for our clients across the country. I just thought of something I want to chime in on your reference to buying a, an asset below replacement cost. It, I now realize we want to maybe take a step back and ask, would we replace that asset today? Just getting, you know, buying a below replacement cost sounds great, but not if it's an asset we wouldn't choose to replace. And and not if it's an asset that just doesn't have any ability to attract any tenancy. I mean, that's that's the issue. And that was my comment earlier, is that there's just assets out there that I don't, you know, we, we would have to get back to 100% occupancy uh, of those at least office space like we had pre-pandemic in order for the, some of these buildings to lease. Um, I, mean, I, I can't stress it enough. There are some that just, in my opinion, unless that occurs, which is people come back in 100%, uh, they're destined for failure. I guess time will tell, and we'll eventually see who the smart money was and who the stupid money was. Although, uh, at the same time, hard to you know call um, smart people that make decisions that are counter to what the Fed decides to do, stupid. Um, I think you're just a participant in the market and you could be an amazing uh, ship uh, steerer or sailor, uh, but then there's just like 10 tsunamis that batter your boat. Not really much you can do. Um, and as I often joke with my friends, and this doesn't just affect the real estate market, but really all markets, uh, an asteroid could be hurling towards Earth about to end humanity as we know it. And if the Fed were printing money, the stock market would be way up. So it's a, a very, uh, and as we've talked about on the pod, it's a very whiplashy kind of economy these, these days where, you know, amazing employment numbers. Oh, gosh. Okay, now the Fed's going to increase interest rates more. The market's down, you know, 4%. And you're scratching your head saying, I thought good news is good news. And really, it's good news is bad news, and bad news is good news uh, because of the impact that you know Fed's monetary policy has on all of the overall markets, um, and in particular, uh, fixed income markets, uh, of which uh, I would include real estate in that category. Um, okay, well, with that, let's move on to our our, our you know our primary topic of today's podcast, which is as we are shifting to a tenant's market, what are the new provisions that we are now being successful getting for our clients? And I think it warrants uh, just highlighting, this is not just office, right? As we as Owen talked about, this is life science, but it's also industrial. Um, for the first time, I had a industrial landlord uh, that is a large publicly traded REIT 
looking at a, a you know very complicated large uh, build a suit and they told me that hey we don't think that we can comp out these rents and here's why we can't comp them out and in 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 major part was it um due to the interest rate increase last week i think that caught a lot of people um in a position where they they hadn't expected that to occur but um anyways this also impacts industrial so we're going to start seeing uh provisions for industrial tenants that nobody has seen or thought about over the last several years and of course it won't be extreme as um, what we're seeing with uh, and securing for office tenants, but it also does warrant uh, a conversation. Yeah, and I think based on the asset class, the things that we're achieving now that we weren't before um, are different, right? So like office spaces, it's a tenant's market. You can get, get pretty much whatever you want. Uh, whereas other markets like Tucker referenced industrial, um, like I talked about earlier, life sciences, um, those changes and those things we're getting are a little bit different than office, meaning they're, they're not as um, willing to do everything an office owner is willing to do. But I think the biggest thing too, like keep in mind is that it's not just these nuances, like I'm sure my teammates will talk about like SNDAs and so forth, but some of the stuff is like the most simple things you could possibly think of, which is just shorter terms. So during the pandemic, you know, life science companies had to sign up for 10 years almost. I mean, it was almost as if like the landlords were so bullish on the market and there was so much demand they just were like it's a 10-year lease and if you're not willing to do that we'll we'll get the next one um whereas now i've got here in seattle and throughout the country on transactions i'm working for i have real estate developers um building out space before there's even a tenant so think about that like spending hundreds of dollars a square foot to build out a life science lab space that you could walk in tomorrow and put your people in and start working before there's even a a, a perceived demand. Um, then when there is that demand that comes along, they're willing to do one, two, three year leases, which is unheard of. Um, we're based on where we were 18, 24 months ago. Um, so some of this stuff is not, I, I want to stress, like, it's not like the most, like, we're not going to bring something up. That's like, Oh, this is a unique, uh, nuance that has never been seen before. Some of this stuff is the most basic things that just developers weren't willing to do. Termination options is another one we're getting for industrial life science and office tenants. Whereas rewind 24 months ago, 36 months ago, they were very hard to come by. And termination options at very little cost um, relative to what you might otherwise think. So I just want to stress like throughout all asset classes, landlords are just trying to become deal makers. Whereas before um, they were really driving the ship and restrictive as to what they might offer. You know, interesting, in addition to shorter-term lab leases, um, I've seen shorter-term lab leases with turnkey TIs. I mean, that's just crazy, but that's how desperate some life science landlords are to transact. They're sitting on empty space today. It, and not only turnkey in the TI, but offering to pay for all of the furniture, office and lab furniture, on top of the tenant improvement contribution. So, and we're seeing that in office buildings too, where in addition to the CI allowances, we're able to request, hey, we want this much money to buy new furniture. And in many cases, uh, assuming we're committing to a long enough lease, that's that's the case. Oh, and when that happens and the landlord provides you a you know, $25, $30 square foot allowance to buy furniture, uh, do does the ownership of the building retain ownership of the furniture or are they giving that as a cash allowance for the tenant to buy and own their furniture on their own? Uh, usually it's a cash allowance and I've had some landlords even tell me 
with the cash allowance. Like, hey, here's your furniture allowance. If you want to spend it on flat screen TVs for your conference room, networking equipment, or heck, throw yourself a party, uh, it's cash. So unrestricted. Um, and the tenant would retain ownership of anything they spend the money on. Wow. Yeah, that's a, a big departure from 2019 where you may, would have been lucky to get you know a $5 square foot moving allowance from a landlord. Uh, and usually when you did something like that, you were paying for it with a slightly higher rent or something like that. Um, I have also seen that happen. I have seen uh, landlords uh, that previously were willing to provide fully furnished spaces at a premium of maybe uh, 50 cents per square foot per month now saying, hey, if you'll lease the space, we'll just provide it fully furnished. We'll buy brand new, whatever you want. Um, I haven't seen what you've seen, Owen, um, so much as, hey, we'll you know give you 30 bucks a foot to buy furniture, do whatever you want, but more uh, landlords buying furniture, keeping it. Um, and I think part of it is a securitization thing. I mean, if you had a really high credit tenant, then um, I, I doubt that a landlord would care. But if you had a lower quality, lower credit tenant, then I think the landlord really cares about retaining ownership of the furniture uh, I think that closely relates to when, you know, you're subleasing space. It is so challenging to move unfurnished sublease space right now. And landlords have been looking at the large blocks of space that have been leased or subleased. And a huge portion of it have been moving ready, already pre-cabled, already pre-furnished spaces that are just low friction, easy, and also inexpensive. I'm just, um, I just have finished a transaction recently where, um, not only did we get furniture included in the deal, but in addition to that, the landlord provided a, a very unique deal structure where we received um, nearly a year of beneficial occupancy, which is a way for landlords to structure a deal while keeping their you know face rents up and not providing a ton of free rent, um, at least on the on the um, surface of the deal, by providing all of the free rent before the lease commences. So if you have a, a, a company and you're going to be making a move in the next couple of months, many landlords expect that if they have a vacancy today, that, that space, they're probably not going to be collecting rent on it for 12 to 18 months. And if you have a occupancy date that is sooner than later, and you can go to the landlord and say, hey, look, I shouldn't be uh, penalized by the fact that my occupancy date is sooner. Your best case scenario, if I don't lease your building, is that somebody begins paying you rent and late 2024. So I'll commit to this space now, give me use of the space at no cost. I mean, if anything, maybe you pay variable operating expenses or something like that and get a year free rent before the lease even begins, which in, in the technical term in our industry is beneficial occupancy. And then your lease begins in late 2024 when they would otherwise expect to find a tenant. Maybe you get five months of free rent on a five-year deal and that's when the actual lease term itself begins. Um, so the structure ends up being 12 months of beneficial occupancy, five months of free rent, and then maybe 60 months of paid term. Um, and that 60 months would begin in, you know, 20, late 2024, early 2025. Yeah, it's a fun time to be a broker with with tenants in the market, isn't it? And I think, so I, I think my advice would be, and in, in areas to focus on and uh, would be, know the landlords that you're dealing with and know the tenants, right? So life science you brought up and the, the fact that landlords are delivering space turnkey, well, they're competing with subleases. So they have space that's, you know, it's 200, 250, 300 and up a foot to build lab space. They're competing with fully built out, fully furnished lab space. Their space will not lease unless they do it. 
you walk in the door as a tenant, you're going to provide them income on space. They're probably going to have to go spec on anyway to drive any type of interest in it. So, so understanding that they're going there anyway, and you should get that value. Um, other landlords where, where the space is sitting there, it's fully furnished, it's office space, flexibility. What is their out-of-pocket cost, right? It's truly low. It's TIs and, and brokerage commissions in many cases. So um, flexibility is, is the area you focus on, right? If your client wants a short-term lease, you can get a one, two, three-year office lease, and, you know, whatever, whatever terms you want in terms of that. The right to downsize. The right to stagger lease expirations if you're a multi-four tenant or a large tenant. Um, the right to drive landlords to enhance base building. So in, in terms of when does your TI kick in and when does the landlord's delivery of the base building end? Push that. Get your, you know, stuff like drop ceilings if you're doing that. T-bar lighting um, or um, lighting, flooring, um Distribution of HVAC. So provide landlords a plan as part of the lease. They, they have to distribute your HVAC. Um, other areas of an enhanced base building that allow you to, and that could be $20, $30, $40 a foot of, of capital cost that you're pushing back on the landlord as part of the delivery of the space to you. So there's there's areas there. Most favored nations is another one I like to put in um, and allow you to do if, you know, if there's a period of time after you sign your lease, that they do a deal with a with a rent that's lower than the rent that you're paying, you get that rent. Um, and as a large user, you can get that in many uh, in many cases. Few Ryan days. loves enhanced base building deliveries. It's one of his go tos. <laughs> Somebody wants to talk about optimizing a proposal or lease, he's like, "Let me talk to you about enhanced base building deliveries right now." Uh, I think, like. What it really comes down to is you have to understand every lever you possibly can pull here. And then you also simultaneously need to understand exactly what the company you're working with needs and what is going to drive the most value for them. Um, one of the other things that is an interesting phenomenon with all of this subly space and fully furnished space and space that's moved, moving ready is that typically when you're negotiating an um, option to terminate, they're usually based on the unamortized costs at the time of termination. So you sign a, a 10-year lease, you have a right to terminate at the fifth year, and you can terminate based on paying back the uh, unamortized portion of the free rent, tenant improvements, and brokerage commissions. And when there's um, beneficial occupancy instead of free rent, and there's um, a, maybe a structure where you take a lower rent instead of free rent for the duration of the term. No tenant improvements um, and brokerage commissions are really the only out-of-pocket cost. Then you have the ability to terminate for usually like a month or two of free rent. And when you're negotiating these options, what you're really negotiating is a right to renegotiate down the line, assuming that the termination option is low. Because say that you know, for some reason, the rent that you negotiate today, it escalates at 3% per year. And in five years, the market's deteriorated even further. Well, now you have the right to pay a month or two of rent and completely renegotiate your lease. Um, and these, you know, rights to terminate are becoming extremely common. So it's, um, it's an interesting structure that only exists now because you can find space that's moving ready where you're not having to you know, ask the landlord to provide $150 or $200 per square foot tenant improvement allowance. 
Let me let me just respond, Tucker. I do think enhanced base building is a key part of a negotiation, but I will broaden it to say most brokers I've dealt with, especially brokers for landlords or landlords themselves, will try to narrow down a negotiation to a pretty basic term sheet, and they'll leave all this cost in the wind for a tenant to absorb later on. I like to front load all of those. And the base building delivery, if you could sign a 10-year lease and you and you have the landlord contribute an extra 30 or $40 to the delivery, that's 3 or $4 in rent. And I've worked with brokers that get excited if we accept the rent that's 50 cents higher than they offered, but they give us 30 or $40 on the back end to deliver the base building. It's It comes down to really understanding where costs sit. I spend significant time in a negotiation in the operating expense clause. Many brokers just, just gloss right over it. Why? Because there's massive amounts of cost hidden in operating expenses that you can negotiate out if you actually know what you're doing. And and unfortunately, the industry's gotten so weak that many people don't on the tenant side, and, and landlords do. They're adding fees on top of fees on top of fees. And a lot of landlords are just operators now. They're just in the business to collect fees. What do we do? We have to get dig into that stuff. I mean, insurance provisions. Right, it's like the cost of of these things that landlords can insure, but they want to push through premiums through through to the tenants, right? So it's it's um it's an area of that's that's of focus to me because there's a lot of value you can drive there, and you still can give a landlord a rent that you know that they can that they can sell into the marketplace and achieve the goals they want at a much lower cost if you really dig in in the negotiations and get some of these things we're talking about. One of the things that has been really surprising to me, particularly on the industrial side, is um, I've been in some negotiations where we just can't quite get to where we want to get. And uh, I had a recent experience, probably on a um, 100,000 square foot or so industrial deal in the greater Los Angeles area. And the, we got a, a typical response back from a kind of cocky industrial broker of, hey, you know, vacancies 3% in Southern California. This is a great proposal. If you don't like it, too bad. And we had a really aggressive response we submitted, and we sent it in, and we said we didn't even reply with a, a formal written proposal. We just wrote back and said, we'll move forward based on the blow bullets. And in the bullets, we said, all we're looking for is a average rental rate over the duration of the lease, which can be anywhere between um, three and seven years at landlord's choosing. But we need the average rental spend calculated by you know total consideration divided by lease term to be X dollars per month. We didn't provide it per square foot. We just said, you know, like for example, it needs to be $150,000 per month, triple net, or less average rental spend over the duration of the lease. And there are times where you're negotiating and these these um, particularly non-institutional landlords will become extremely attached to what the per square foot rent is. And if you can change it out of a negotiation around what the per square foot rent should be and say, hey, look, I don't care what the market is. This is what our business can afford to pay comfortably for the site. And if you can't do that, then we're going to leave. Um, it's a way to, um, you know, quickly get to a, a, a point where it's less of a negotiation and more of a framing around this is what we need. This is the dollars that our business can afford. And in this particular negotiation, the landlord didn't accept, but they came very close to it. And it's a, uh, a rent that is uh, easily justifiable as 15, 20% below market, which 
results in millions of dollars of savings on a long-term lease for this particular company. Great, great job. And I think it's a point worth making that the landlord is not the enemy, right? It's, they're an adversarial in the sense that like we're negotiating against them, but there's no, there's no point in trying to scorch the earth. We're not out there trying to destroy anybody or any institution because after all, the tenant and the landlord have to live with one another for the next possibly five, six, seven, ten years. Um, and so I like Tucker's approach because I was going to suggest earlier that there's no two landlords that are the same in the sense that how they structure a deal and what, what they consider to be most sacred to them. So, you know, to, to go out um, and just send proposals sometimes um, without actually spending the time to understand who is the owner, what are their motivations, are they a private investor, is it a real estate investment trust, otherwise known as a REIT, you know, what are their motivations and how can they guess bet it, best get a deal done? and understand how they structure deals and how they value deals, you'll be much more effective at getting those things that you care about um, or getting the best possible terms when you understand the nuances of what's important to that landlord. And each landlord's, like I said, different. They care about different things and uh, no two are the same. So kudos to Tucker for the way he was going to negotiate that. And I also want to bring back one comment on termination options that Tucker was talking about. I thought the same about renewal options. Um, you know, normally a renewal option is that it's at fair market, right? Um, and it, oftentimes it's irrevocable um, and rarely do tenants exercise them. In today's market, you can not only get renewal options, but um, have them be at a percentage of market um, or 3% over the last month's rent. Um, and in those cases, you're either, in a, if you were to exercise, you're either getting it at a discount to market or maybe your rent schedule is so far below market that a 3% increase is still phenomenally good. Um, in these cases, just like that termination options that Tucker talked about, whether you exercise it or not um, is to be determined, but it's a point of leverage and a tool you can use to force um, a renewal outside of having to exercise at incredible, fav incredibly favorable terms, again, depending on where the market might be. I'm personally finding that it's significantly easier on low capital deals to negotiate a termination option than it is to negotiate a fixed rate renewal option. It's, it's very strange. I mean, they're essentially the same thing. If there's limited capital, it's a nominal termination, right? But for whatever reason, landlords are very committed to saying, nope, we do not provide fixed rate renewal options. We just don't do that. And I think brokers have uh, that represent sub-landlords have been trained by their institutional clients that have left you know so much money on the table by agreeing to fixed rate options to just say blanket, we don't accept it. Yet I almost never receive any pushback on a termination option based off of unamortized cost. So it's interesting. Um, obviously, if you had the choice between a fixed rate renewal option um, or being able to terminate a super low, low amount, a fixed rate renewal option would be better unless it limits your ability to get upfront concessions. So it will be interesting to see how that evolves and whether we'll see fixed rate renewal options become common. Um, it hasn't been common since you know, um, you know, 2009, 2010 timeframe where the office market, you know, notwithstanding the current times that we live in was the most depressed that had been since the, you know, RTC crisis. Yeah. And I think, I think the a strategy you can think about too, is if fixed rate is a non-starter for the owner for, for whatever reason, you could look at it differently, right? Because owners love to have floors in their renewal options. It's 100% of market. It's 95% of market. It's no less than the previous year's rent. Okay, well, if we're going to give you a floor, you've got to give us a cap. 
So maybe it's not a fixed rent option, but it's no higher than 3 or 5% over the previous year. So it's whatever. I've got a great example here, a client about 50,000 feet. We, many, many years ago, they were in the kind of mid-teens. We renegotiated during the last downturn to the high single digits. They wanted a floor on the renewal because they were reeling. Um, they had, they had, you know, obviously just lost about 50% of the value of, of our lease uh, in the renewal. They needed a floor, um, and we gave it to them. We gave them 100%. It was like an $8.50 start on the new deal. We gave them a, that's the floor, is, is, that, is that rent. But we, we required a 5% cap. And come to renewal time, they send us a proposal. Our rent was, you know, around $10, $11 a foot. They, they send us a proposal in kind of the high teens. So we, we exercised. And it, it, it went uh, so far as becoming a very, um, uh, I would say, it went litigious. Litigious, is that the right word? Uh, but it went to court because they didn't like the, the renewal option. We ended up uh, winning because they just couldn't believe that the um, that the clause prohibited them from getting market rent, and um, and we have multiple renewal options at that fixed fixed cap and collar, and uh, we're going to be in the building for a long time, just exercising our options because of uh, the leverage we had at the time of the of the renewal. Yeah, can I give a quick hit? Uh, just an well, two. Uh, I'd be nervous giving a cash security, a large cash security deposit to an office landlord today. Instead, use that um, letter of credit because in a bankruptcy, that cash deposit could get wiped out. And then I was just going to quickly mention these colas, um, you know, this idea of a fixed 3% annual cost of living adjustment. Um, very quickly, let me riff on cost of living adjustments. You know, virtually every lease already allows the landlord to pass through increasing expenses. So what shenanigans are we letting them get away with by calling that fixed annual increase a COLA, a cost of living adjustment? It isn't. It should be called a GMA, a guaranteed minimum appreciation. But in this market climate, I think we shouldn't just default to a fixed 3% bump, I've, especially on a longer-term lease. I've got a long-term lease I'm doing now where we're negotiating for a 5% 5, 5 increase every 24 months. Get creative. Don't just yield to a 3%. I mean, some landlords were at 4% and 5% fixed annual increases. Let's challenge that too okay with that let's wrap episode 10 thanks so much everyone for listening i think the main takeaway of this idea of what can you negotiate today that perhaps you couldn't have negotiated uh, five years ago is that there is a really big difference between just executing versus winning and the difference between a really good outcome and a, a kind of mild moderate outcome is really is really that you have to have a strategy you have to understand all the levers you can pull and you have to be focused on winning instead of just kind of administratively processing a deal. And that's what we see the best real estate departments focused on is how do they really add value versus just survive and push everything ahead. So with that, um, thanks again for listening to episode 10 and we'll be back with episode 11 soon. Thanks. Thanks.